pray as we look at God's word this morning. Father, we want to thank you because you are good. What you do is good. We pray for our children. We ask that the stuff that they're taught would open them up to hearing you, to knowing you, to seeing how amazing you are. Would you reveal yourself to them? And Father, for us here this morning, we pray that as we look at the beginning of Matthew, that you would help us to hear your word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, um, I'm going to be preaching through the New Testament. We'll probably be done by the year 3000, so don't be too worried about how long that will take. Um, But we are starting with the Gospel of Matthew. If you were not here last week, um, I gave a bit of an overview of Matthew and what Matthew is all about. Um, But this week we are launching in on Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I do want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. One of the things that challenged me in preaching through the text is that when you sit at home and you read the Bible, God will bring back the stuff that you've heard um, that has been spoken about the text. And so now I'm reading from the NLT. If you're part of our Timothy group, which is our Christian youth group, uh, we did a whole session on Bible translations. And uh, a long story short, the reason I use the NLT on a Sunday is it is the most understandable version. Sometimes I will change that if I think that they may have been a bit too... Um, what's the word, taken too much license in how they've interpreted it. But uh, by and large, the NLT is a great reading Bible. And so I'm using that this morning. Now we're going to read just the first 17 verses. These are the ones that we normally skip over because it's talking about who was the father of whom. So let me read through Matthew chapter 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Actually, really should have said the wife of Uriah, but... Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. 
Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliza. Eliza was the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from, a, from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you, when you read that, just quickly skip over that? Yeah, probably most of us. Uh, have, has anybody read the book of 1 Chronicles? Yeah. Book of 1 Chronicles, the first seven chapters are just this. List of genealogies. <coughs> but we really need to ask the question, why is Matthew, in writing his gospel, starting off with this genealogy of Jesus Christ? Why is he putting a family tree in here? And to answer that question, we need to go back about 4,000 years. 4,000 years ago, there lived a man on the earth called Abraham. Everybody heard of Abraham? Abraham in the Old Testament. And God chose a people, we know them as the Israelites, but the start of that choice came with a promise to a man, made, a man called Abraham. And so God chose a people, and in Genesis 22, God says to, to Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. And there we have a promise that one of the descendants of Abraham will come, and when he comes, he will bless the entire world. Now, just think about it. That's 4,000 years ago. 2,000 years before Matthew wrote his gospel, this was spoken by God. And then we move from there to 1,000 years after Abraham. And 1,000 years after Abraham, there was a guy called David. And God speaks to David and he says, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Now, we might be uh, excused for thinking this is talking about Solomon because he built the temple afterwards. But you'll notice that God's promise is that he will secure his royal throne forever. Solomon is not still on the throne. And so there was this promise that somebody would come along who would be the king forever and he would follow in the footsteps of David. Now, there are two people we've mentioned whom this promise has come to. Abraham and David. And if you look at this genealogy, it says at the very beginning, in verse 1, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. We'll talk about that in a moment. A descendant of David and Abraham. Do you see the link? 
God is saying, I'm going to send somebody and he is going to bless the whole world and his kingdom will never end and he will be a descendant of Abraham and he will be a descendant of David. And this phrase was coined by the Israelites, the son of David. We're looking for the son of David. Now the Israelites had hoped that when the son of David comes, he will come as a conquering king and he will annihilate all the enemies as the old kings of Israel had done. They kind of missed it. But son of David, it also connects with this term Christ and Messiah. Now, when you read the Gospels, you will find he is called Jesus Christ, but he's called Jesus the Messiah. Any idea why we have those two words, Christ and Messiah? Some Bible scholar will shout it out. They're actually the same word. Yep. Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word. And they have the same meaning. They mean the anointed one. And it stems back from David, when David was anointed king, that he would have a descendant, the son of David, who would be the anointed one, which is the Messiah, the Christ. But he is the special anointed one who will rule for all eternity. So why am I mentioning this? Why has um, Matthew placed this at the very beginning of his gospel because you can understand that when Matthew was alive Jesus had been crucified Jesus rose from the dead but let me ask you what did the Jews or the Pharisees specifically in the Sadducees what did they say to the people about Jesus's resurrection yeah they said his body had been stolen so if you were around the time of Jesus when he had just died and he rose and he, and he went to heaven, following on from that, there were two streams of news going out. One said the disciples stole the body, he's still somewhere dead. And the other was he has risen from the dead. Now, you would have needed to know as a Jew, is he really the Messiah? This promise that was given at that time, 2,000 years previously, all of Israel was waiting for this Messiah. We want this king to come. We're under oppression from the Romans. We want somebody to bring us freedom. We need the son of David to come on his white horse with his conquering army. We need him to set free. And they were looking for this Messiah, this anointed king who would rule forever like King David. And yet... The Pharisees wanted to make sure that Jesus wasn't the Messiah by saying his body had been stolen. He is still dead. So John the Baptist really frames the question the best. He says this, And he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep on looking for someone else? Now the reason Matthew has this genealogy at the very beginning of his book, he is sounding a clear call to all Jews because he's writing to the Jews and he's saying, Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is the one. And we can trace his ancestry all the way back to the promise through David, to the promise through Abraham. He is the one. You need to look for no other. You just need to believe in him. 
And so we, we kind of scan through this genealogy. It's a whole list of names. We move on. And we need to remember that those who would have read it 2,000 years ago when it was written and those who would have heard it read in their, their fellowships when they met together would have said, you know what? Jesus is the one. And I want to say to you this morning, he is still the one. Jesus is still the Messiah. We can start our New Testament knowing that even though in Israel they're still looking for the Messiah to come, we know that he has come and he is enthroned and sitting in heaven. <coughs> so for Matthew, it's no surprise. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he wants them to specifically know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom the promise came. He's a descendant of David through whom the promise has come. And Matthew uses this phrase, the son of David, more than any other New Testament book. He is wanting to say to the Jews, guys, this is really important. We want you to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised one. And so when we look through this, one of the things that should hit you is that God has a plan. You know, God made a promise 4,000 years ago that the Messiah would come, but it took 2,000 years for that to be fulfilled on the earth. What does that mean? Well, it means that God can take a long time, but let me tell you, he will fulfill. We are now 2,000 years after Jesus. It's a very interesting time. And if you uh, are looking at the news like me, you're thinking, man, this is nuts. This is all in the end times, earthquakes and floods and, you know, fires and, and everything else. All the stuff going on that makes you wonder how long is it until God's plan for Jesus Christ will be fulfilled in his second coming. Now, to the Jews, this genealogy would have caused a lot of upset. Why do you think that genealogy would cause a lot of upset. <coughs> yep, there were people in there who weren't Jews. Worse than that, they were part of nations that were forbidden to be part of the Jewish nation. Let me tell you why it would have caused consternation. In verse 3, we come across a lady called Tamar. Now, Tamar, it says to us in verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Now, Judah had two sons. He had his firstborn Ur and his secondborn Onan. Now, the Jewish tradition was that if one son died, the other sons uh, would have to marry uh, the woman so that the descendants would continue through the family line and the name wouldn't die out. That was a, a Jewish obligation for male siblings if one of them died. So Ur was a wicked man and God put him to death. So Onan had to sleep with his brother's wife so that she would have a son. But Onan didn't want 
his brother's line to continue. And so he was naughty. And I'm not going to go into the details. You can read about it. But the result was that he worked in such a way that um, Tamar, who was um, Ur's wife, would never ever have a child. And so God put him to death. So you're already getting that we've got here in the genealogy that Perez and Zerah, the mother was Tamar, but the father was Judah. But hold on a minute. Judah was the father of Ur, whom she was married to, and Onan, whom she was married to. How on earth did she have a child by Judah? Well, the story continues. Because Judah had another son, and his name was Shelah, and he was younger, and so he said to Tamar, go back to your father's house. When he's old enough, you can marry him, and we'll continue on. But he didn't fulfill his promise because he was scared. His first two sons had died, that the next one would die. He was thinking, maybe Tamar's a problem. Tamar saw that Shelah was old enough, but she wasn't given to him in marriage. And so she went out. She dressed like a prostitute by the temple. Judah was going past. He paid her, had sex with her. And out of that union was born Perez and Zerah, the twins. Can you imagine for the Jews? The Messiah has that in his history? No way. Well, it doesn't get any better. Rahab. Rahab was part of the first conquering or place to be conquered and she was a prostitute and not Jewish. She's in the family line in verse 5. Then we've got Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not allowed to be part of the Jews because the Moabites did not treat them well when they came out of Egypt, so it was forbidden and yet she's in that line. Then we've got Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to Uriah. David and Bathsheba committed adultery. To hide the adultery, David kind of murdered Uriah. Well, that's in that genealogy. Can you imagine sitting down? Well, let's talk about your family history. Well, let's not. <laughs> now, before you think I'm only singling out the ladies here, let me redress the balance here because we've got this whole list of kings. Now, I'm not going to go through them, but a lot of those kings were evil kings. It says very clearly in the Old Testament that this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord and quite a few of them, Manasseh and so, they are all here in this genealogy. The bad stuff that the ladies did is eclipsed by the evil behavior of these kings. The point is this, that Jesus' genealogy included bad people. Some very bad people. Kings who murdered, kings who committed adultery, kings who abused their people. And yet, they are listed here in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. And I want to just stop here for a moment. What's the lesson that we find in this section of the text? Let me tell you something. You can't change your ancestry. You can't do it. You may have had a bad dad, a bad granddad, a bad great-granddad. doesn't matter. 
You can't change it in the same way Jesus had no control over that, but Jesus never ever used it for an excuse and he never says it held him back. Could a heart back, yeah, well it was, you know, it was Ahab or it was Manasseh who did all the bad stuff. And here's the other thing. You can't make your children follow your path. When you look at the list of kings, you'll find that bad kings were followed by good kings, which were their sons. And good kings were followed by bad kings, which were their sons. I mean, it's crazy. Some of the best kings ever had really evil sons who then took on the throne. Inasmuch as you are not responsible for having bad ancestry, you're also not responsible for the decisions that your children make when they become adults. You're not. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe you look and think, well, if only I'd been a better parent. No, when they become an adult, they are responsible for their decisions. It's not on you. So often, people blame their parents. Now, I don't want to diminish that some children have faced horrible abuse as a child. I don't want to diminish that. That is real and that is present. But I am saying that we are responsible for our decisions. I'm not responsible for my parents' decisions. I'm not responsible for my children's decisions. I am responsible for the decisions that I make in the life that I live and in the context that I am in. And I want to maybe free some of you this morning. It's not about your parents. Don't feel guilty over your children if they've walked away. Pray for them. Love them. Pray for them. God is still at work. There is still time. God still has a plan. But don't allow it to crush you by saying, it's my fault. Because it's not. Jesus was born from a lineage that we would all think, man, I'm glad I wasn't born in that family. Now, here's the good news. Jesus can heal us from the past. You know, if you have had a bad childhood, if you have had bad parents, and it's left a bad effect in your life, well, turn to Jesus, and he can bring healing from those memories that you've had, from those things that occurred. He can remove the anger or the hate or the shame that other people have put upon us and we can live in freedom and we can live free from the behavior of other people. One of the things I love in reading through this genealogy is that in the end, it's about us and our decisions, not anybody else. Jesus can heal us from what others have done. We can pray for our children, but ultimately we are answerable for the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. That is the thing we need to focus on. There's one other thing that I wanted to mention that comes out of this. You'll notice that there's three sets of 14 genealogies, and one of them, the first one, is split by the Babylonian exile. Now, the Israelites had become so sinful, they were so disobedient to God, that God allowed a conquering nation in to exile them to another nation. 
Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying it twofold. We've got to be prepared in the UK as we turn our back on God that we might not be the head anymore as the, the West has been over many hundreds of years. Things may change. Israel was the head, but they lost it. And they were taken out into exile. Now, the Babylonian exile really was a culmination of the poor behavior of the Israelites. It was something that the prophets had warned them about again and again. And I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think for a moment that the UK is conquered and we are moved to another nation. Let's say China comes in and they exile all of us somewhere, all eating whatever it is, rice uh, in China, and we're moved there. What would that mean? That would mean we're no longer free. We don't have the freedom to do what we want. We don't have the freedom to live our culture. That is exactly what the Jews experienced. They were taken away from Israel, and they were taken off to Babylon, and that is where they had to live. But here's the thing I want you to see in this. That even though that occurred... It did not affect God's plan for the Messiah to be born in Israel of a Jewish descendant. Isn't that an amazing thing? That even though socially and politically there was massive upheaval, it did not change God's plan that Jesus would be born in Nazareth or in Bethlehem and then live in Nazareth. It didn't change it. Absolutely nothing. And I want to say to you, no matter what happens in the UK in the coming years, no matter what upheaval we face, whatever is going on, the fact of the return of Jesus Christ is never ever in question. It will happen and God's plans and promises for us as a nation, for us as a church, they stand. Nothing can change that. The powers that be at that time could have done anything they wanted, but it would not have changed God's plan in one little bit. And I say this as a bit of a challenge for us, because as our nation moves further away from God's values and God's commands, there's nothing saying that we are protected from being attacked by another nation. We would have maybe said, oh, that's impossible, but we've seen Ukraine. Who knows? But I love this fact that God is able to make his plan come to pass. And when we go through this genealogy of Jesus Christ, then we see that from the promise to the fulfillment is 2,000 years. And it's 2,000 years of, of dysfunctional family, of bad kings, of good kings, of political upheaval. God's plan still came to pass. And if you have promises that God has given you, if you have things that God has said, I look at the word we've had as a church for many years, that the prodigals will return. Let me tell you, that word from God will not fall to the ground until it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, I'm coming again, it's, it's happening. We are closer now to the coming of Jesus than we have ever, ever been. The world has hit a backstop. There's nowhere else to escape. And so let me tell you that no plan of man, no human act, no change in society has any inroads into changing the very plans 
of God. In fact, we're told in Proverbs that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord who orders our footsteps. And I want you to take courage in that. Take courage in the fact that your future with God is certain, irrespective of all the stuff that goes on. You know, over the years, <coughs> over the years in church, we kind of tend to wear a mask because we think we need to be perfect. Things go wrong in our lives and we think, well, it shouldn't be going wrong in my life. And somebody says, how are you? And say, hey, I'm fine. And you're not fine. Things are not going fine, but we say, hey, we're fine. We should be the most transparent people on the planet. We should be saying, yeah, it's not gone fine. It's not gone fine with my kids or it's not gone fine with my wife or it's not gone fine with my husband or it's not gone fine at work or it's not. And we need to say, yeah, we're going to stand together. We're going to pray. The church is not full of perfect people. It's full of a load of sinners who are being perfected by Jesus in a process. And we walk with him and we take courage that the greatest king that Israel ever had was an adulterer and a murder. Well, I'm encouraged by that. Well, if he, he's been that bad, then I should be okay. But we recognize that except for the grace of God, that's how we walk. And we're not a perfect people, but we have a perfect God whom we trust and whom we follow. And I'm going to finish with this scripture. It's the one that we're memorizing this month. It says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, you know, we need to take courage in that. This year we've lost a lot of our brothers and sisters. But you know what? That will not separate us from them because we will see them again. When Christ comes, we will meet them in the air. They'll already be there. They'll be waving us in. We will see them again. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will separate us from God's love to us. Let's pray.